One of the uh, worst feelings in the world is when you experience buyer's remorse. This is maybe something you guys have had. If you've ever bought a house or bought a car, this is a very common thing to deal with. Um, we've got a list here of the things that people often, most often feel buyer's remorse for. This is the idea that you get something and then as soon as you have bought it, all the excitement of buying it wears off and then you think to yourself, oh no, why did I buy that? Uh, it's really common, particularly with homes and cars, because they're big expenses. And it's kind of interesting, the, um, the psychology behind it. Kind of the way it works is this. Um, psychologists have hypothesized sort of two systems that we have in our brains. The one system is called the avoidance system. And the avoidance system is that part of your brain that goes, this is a bad idea, it's gonna cost a lot of money, it's not gonna be as nice as you think it is, you're not gonna enjoy it as much as you think it is, don't buy it, don't buy it, don't buy it, don't buy it. And then there's the other system, which is the approach system. And the approach system is the part of you that you're done with dinner, you're feeling pretty full, and the waitress goes, would you like dessert? And your brain just goes, oh yeah, that would be great, wouldn't it? It's that piece of you that kind of encourages instant gratification. And these two systems are always at war in our minds. We are constantly fighting between the part of us that's like, nope, 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 never, not a good idea, not a good idea. Life would be terribly unfun if that was the only system we had running. We also would never get anything finished. We'd have no clothes in our closet because every time we went to buy something, we'd go, I don't know, I bet I can find that sweater cheaper somewhere else. But on the other side, it's not good to live constantly in the, yeah, sure, whatever. And what psychologists have found is that what really often happens is the part of your mind that is going with your overall purposes is the side that wins. So this is what that means. Your car breaks down, gets towed, it's a total, it's not worth anything. And you know, I've got to find a car this weekend so that I can get to work on Monday morning. And so your brain is moving towards purchasing a car because you gotta have a car, you gotta have some way to get to work. And so your brain allows the approach system to kind of take over because the approach system is doing what you need to get done, which is to get a car purchased. And so the part of you goes, ooh, that's a good car, I should buy that one. It goes, yep, yeah, sure, go ahead, do it, do it, do it. And that takes over until you buy it and now you have a car and you have a way to get to work on Monday and now suddenly your brain is no longer focused on this task and so it allows the other half of the system back in. And that's where you're driving home and you go, oh, this is kind of an expensive car. Oh, I already lost value as soon as I drove off the, the lot. Why am I doing this? This is a bad idea. I could take the bus. I should have bought a bicycle. I mean, it's two degrees out, but I should have bought a bicycle. And you just, you just have that terrible feeling of buyer's remorse. And it's, it's common. It's really common for us because we try to be balanced people. God gave us these things to help us make good decisions. And it's really easy to make a decision. And then after you make it going, oh, wow, that was a big decision. What do I do with this now? Uh, I think that to some degree, uh, that is a state that we are in as a church. Okay, it's January, everybody's sick, it's snowy, it's a pain. But beyond that, we just came off a year where we made lots of changes. And it would be very easy as a church to kind of have buyer's remorse. Uh, you even, it's really easy to forget 
the needs you had once you fixed the needs. Right? So with the car, we said, I've got to have a car drive Monday morning. You buy it and you go, did I really need a car? Yes! You really needed it. Okay? You come off the high of the purchase and you start thinking nonsense. For us as a church, we made this move to the school in part to have space, to have room. Right? There wasn't place to sit on full days at the old space. Our kids literally had nowhere to be. They were bouncing around you know, a five-by-five five cubicle in a trailer out in the parking lot. And we said we need to make a move that gives us opportunity for long-term growth. It gives us space. It gives us kids' classrooms. It gives us lots of things. But the reality is the need for the space drove that one system. And now... We're like, oh yeah, but, but, but then how do we connect with the school and how do we find more people? And what about days where it's not so full? And then immediately your brain starts going to, okay, well, how do we live this out? And in those times, you have to have the spirit of a builder. But not even the spirit of a builder, a spirit of a rebuilder. Because the reality is organizations go through these cycles where they get to sort of the end of a successful cycle and they need to jump to something new. And all of a sudden it's time to build again. And sometimes people are like, oh, I don't like building. Building is a lot of work. And other people are like, oh, hey, man, I'm excited again. Now we're actually, we're doing it. felt like it was getting stale. And now it's different and it's challenging. And different minds approach it in different ways. As Bruce and I talked about a sermon series for this, this uh, winter slash spring, we wanted to talk about the idea of rebuilding. Okay, we made some big moves, we made some big changes. Now, how do we build out of those changes into something new? How do we find the new people to fill the new chairs that are now available, right? And that work of building is, uh, is hard, and sometimes we need spiritual guidance on how we do it. And so we're going to look at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. These are books that maybe you have never studied before. It would not be uncommon to be a you know, Christian a long time and never have read these books. Uh, I probably could have told you we're going to study Ezra and Nehemiah, and you go, okay, and think it's one book. It's actually two, right? But they're right next to each other, and we usually study them as a pair. They kind of go together. And they're from a period in Israel's history that many of us are not super familiar with. I'm going to give you the quick three-minute history of Israel to help place ourselves where Ezra and Nehemiah are. Uh, You'll remember that the nation of Israel becomes a great people in uh, the land of Egypt. And then God parts the Red Seas, does the ten plagues, and moves the people out of Egyptian slavery and into a new land. And after he does that, Joshua and the armies and Moses, they lead the people through the wilderness wandering, and then they take them into the new land. And in that new promised land... They conquer it. We have stuff like stories like Jericho, where they blow the trumpets and the walls fall down and they take over the, the, the peoples that are living there and they become a new nation. This fall is followed by a period of relative prosperity and success where we have a group of kings and prophets. This is a good chunk of the Hebrew Bible you're familiar with. King David, King Solomon, and then the other ones whose names you forget, like Josiah and Hezekiah and all of these other great kings. And there's kind of this period where the kings do what they want to do. And when they mess up, the prophets come in and they say, if you don't go back to the law that Moses gave you way back when you left Egypt, you're going to be in trouble and this nation will fall. And usually a king believes that and makes some changes. And then 40 years down the road, they forget about it and they just start misbehaving again. And so there's all these cycles 
of repentance and living better and then sin and then repentance again. And then finally, after a bunch of this, God says, enough is enough, fooey, And he takes them into exile. And so the prophets warning, they're not needed. And so eventually God takes the people uh, via the nation of Babylon. He comes in, he destroys Jerusalem, and he puts the people in shackles and they're carried away into Babylonian exile. And you probably know some of those stories pretty well. But the Hebrew Bible does not end with them in exile. There's one last chapter, and that is the chapter of what we call repatriation, or bringing the people back. Now, that image might not look much to you. That is a little piece of what we call a a, uh, Cyrus cylinder. So what happened is King Cyrus and the Persians take over uh, the Babylonian Empire. And the Babylonians' idea of how you conquered a people is you went into their land, you crushed their buildings, you destroyed their structures, and then you took all their smartest and best people, and you ripped them out of that country, and you put them under your thumb in your capital. So a bunch of Jewish people were uprooted from Israel and brought over to live in Babylonian exile. And it's not... Some of them may have experienced slavery conditions, but it's more common that they would even be used like Daniel, in, in special roles. They would be advisors to the king. They would have decent jobs in Babylon, but they'd be stripped of their culture. They'd be given new names that weren't Jewish names, but Babylonian names. And the idea was if you take out all the leaders and all the educated people, you won't have uh, upri- uh, uprisings and revolutions. And this is the way Babylon did things. Well, the Persians take over, and Persians from the area we would now know as Iran, And they kind of take over the deal. And they have all of these captives that are living in Babylonian cities. And the Persians go, I don't really feel like this is working. We took all the smart people and all the wealthy people and all the capable people out of these countries. And we still have uprisings. We still have revolutions. And so the Persians' big idea is that instead of crushing the people that we take over, let's just placate them. Let's let them live in their own lands and worship their own gods and all that stuff. And as long as they pay taxes, we don't care. Right? You, you see this even in the government, right? We went from like, hey, literally like 100 years ago yesterday, the United States government outlawed alcohol, right? Prohibition. And there's this feeling, we're going to stop people from being drunkards. And then they found that really didn't work so well. So they said, well, at least we'll tax them so that we make money while they're becoming drunkards, Right? This is generally the way the Persians work with people. They say, we're going to let them live in their own land. We're going to let them do their own thing. They're just going to pay taxes while they're doing it. And so Cyrus makes this decree. And this decree here is on the cylinder. I think this one's in the British Museum. Uh, We have a few of them where he says, hey, let all the people go back to their lands. And what's really cool is the text of this piece of archaeology is in the book of Ezra as well. The story that Ezra tells very closely follows what we know from items like this is what the secular history also tells us is how uh, the king went about their stuff. So uh, we're going to start out reading a little bit of Ezra. And this just sets the, the picture of what we're talking about. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, you may not remember this, but Jeremiah had prophesied that the people of Israel would only be about 70 years in exile and then they'd be allowed to return home. In order to fulfill the words spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. 
This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who's in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Now, don't get too excited here. The way this is told in the Hebrew Bible, we're like, oh, Cyrus became a Jew. No. Okay, Cyrus had this thing as like a, um, a Mad Lib. Okay, there were just like gaps. And so here he fills in Lord, God of heaven, Jerusalem, Judah. But for the people who were living in uh, Egypt, it would have been the names of their gods and the names of their cities. And for people who were living in Syria, it would have been the names of their gods and the names of their city. Right? Just fill in the blank deity and location to make people happy. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart had been moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. So a bunch of these Jewish people pick up from where they've been in exile and they go, we're going home. This is the post-exilic period, which just means post-exile or the repatriation where people move back, expats move back to the land that they are from. But you have to remember what they're moving into. Um, Since they have been gone, it's not like they've been putting up condos and nice new houses in Jerusalem. They're coming back to destruction. They're coming back to chaos. Uh, Maybe there was some rebuilding by the people who were left, and maybe there's little settlements here and there, but the great Jerusalem has still got burn damage and ash over the great administrative centers. The temple is still a rubble of stones uh, sitting on the ground. They're coming back to not a lot. And the commitment it takes them is really important for us to recognize. He's going, listen, you've got posh jobs here in Babylon, and you've been working for the king, and you've got all these opportunities. But I want you to pick up. I want you to leave. I want you to go back to the promised land. Everyone's like, yay, promised land. But remember, it's rubble. And you are literally building from scratch. Right? There's no McDonald's on the corner. There's no public restrooms. They're literally coming back to nothing. And they're being told, now you can rebuild your promised land. And it's, it's really easy to forget how hard this is. And they have this real big challenge in front of them that they want to pay homage to the past, but they've got to move forward into the future too. And what does it look like to build something that is rooted in the past but's aimed at the future? This is probably a bad example because a lot of people hate this. Uh, this is Soldier Field. I don't know, maybe some of you are old enough to remember Soldier Field before it looked like this. I am a little bit, you know, when I was in elementary school. Uh, you, the, the facade here with the, co- uh, the columns, the thing that looks like Greek Revival architecture, right? That is what Soldier Field used to look like. You went up, and there was just all of this old Gre- Greco-Roman-looking stuff. And then they had to update it and put in luxury boxes and do all the stuff that NFL franchises have to do. And so they built a modern thing inside the old shell. And so that's where you see what looks like a spaceship landed in Greece, right? Because all of a sudden there's, there's metal and there's these glass lines and there's the big boards. 
And it was, a, it was a tricky project. A lot of people don't like the way it ended up looking, but it kind of gives the sense of what I'm talking about. They had this old story building they loved and they wanted to upgrade it. And so it ended up being something that was rooted in the past, but aimed at the future. Something that still lived up to the echoes of George Hallis and all the great bear players and Dick Buckkiss and all this kind of people, but also that fit the needs of the modern world. And that's a really hard thing to do. It's a really hard thing to balance, partially because we can be creatures of nostalgia. It is easy for us to be excited about the things that we used to have. Uh, every once in a while, I hear someone fuss about digital music and about downloading music on your phone. I, as a millennial, don't understand this. I like downloading music on my phone and living in the cloud. But I hear people go, oh man, I want a physical copy. I'm like, but, but the non-physical copy's in the air and you can have it at any time. No, I want a physical copy. And I hear people kind of say things like, man, I remember the old day, you could go to the store and you could pick up a cassette tape of the album you want to buy. People never talk about the cassette tape getting eaten. They never talk about that thing where you're like, oh, don't pull too hard on the, don't pull too hard on it, it'll break in half, and then I'll have to try to tape it, and then will that work? They don't talk about taking ballpoint pens and like trying to crank them. Nobody seems to remember rewinding and fast forwarding. Oh, I want to listen to the song. Instead of clicking it, I have to rewind. And then I'm on the wrong side of the cassette. And then I have to flip it. And then I have to fast forward because I rewind. You know, like, we don't remember any of those things. It's just, man, I wish I could go back to the good old days of cassette tapes. And nostalgia can do that to you. I want to do that good old thing I used to do. But the reality is, you don't always want what you used to do. See, if you are rebuilding Jerusalem and you are working with the people that are there, there's going to be a lot of these conversations where you go, well, we need to rebuild it like it used to be. Well, was it good the way it used to be? For example, uh, the pagan temples that got us in trouble with God and caused idolatry. That's why we got kicked out of here in the first place. Let's not rebuild those. Right? Oh, we got to rebuild grandma's house. Grandma's house was ugly. Why do we want to rebuild grandma's house, right? There's just kind of these challenges. I can imagine, and maybe you've been in these conversations. I think we should do this new thing. And someone else goes, yeah, but what about that old thing we used to have? And the other person goes, that old thing we used to have was terrible. It didn't work. We always fussed about it. We always dreamed about the day we could have something new. I'm sure this is a, a very big problem for people that lose their homes in fires or earthquakes or whatever. There's the instinct, well, let's just build what we used to have. And someone in the family goes, what we used to have, we hated. And it's really hard sometimes for our minds to get through those. Uh, the text really describes it in really a fascinating way. This is a passage where they start to rebuild. And they start by rebuilding the altar and rebuilding the temple. And this is what it says. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of the God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jozadak, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites and all those who had returned from captivity to Jerusalem began to work the appointed Levites, 20 years old and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. 
When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as described by King David of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good, His love toward Israel endures forever. And this is where it gets interesting. All the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish between the sound of the shouts of joy and the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise. And the sound was heard from far away. This is such an understandable human emotion. Hey, we're back. We're going to build the temple. They start to lay the foundations. And all the young people are like, woohoo, temple. Because they've never had a temple in their life, right? They're excited. I'm finally going to have, you know, we're going to be able to experience this. But it says the older folks. Remember, this is a 70-year gap. So this is 80, 90-year-old men and women who saw it burn to the ground when they were 10 years old. They look at it and they see the new foundation being laid. And all they can think to do is just mourn over the loss of the old one. Sure, we're rebuilding it. It's not going to be the same. It's not what we used to have. And it's fascinating that this moment of rebuilding, the Bible isn't like fakely triumphant. It's not like the people are silly enough to only be excited about what's happening. There's this acknowledgement of the morning that when you go to rebuild something, when you move into the second version of something, when you're doing a 2.0 to use, you know, software language, when you're starting again and growing again and changing, some people are going to go, this new thing rocks. And some of the other people are going to go, oh, this new thing isn't the old thing. And it's those, those two impulses we talked about with buying the car. There's some people who go, oh, no, this is never going to work. And other people are going, yes, this is going to be awesome. And it's a natural thing that happens within a community. It's naturally what's happening here. We have these two things at war within the minds of the people who are rebuilding. Uh, here's where this gets important for us. I'm going to grossly simplify this into the like, two categories, right? There's two categories of people, people that simplify everything into two categories and those who don't, you know, like, and so we're going to, I'm going to create kind of two, a dichotomy here that's probably false. When it comes to religion and spirituality, there tends to be two kind of ways to look at it. The one way is to look at spirituality from a snuggy perspective. Spirituality is about crawling up on the couch getting a good book, a glass of coffee, a glass of wine, whatever your deal is, putting your arms in the Snuggie, getting cuddly, and just falling asleep on the couch and feeling comfortable and warm. And that's the way the church should feel. Church should feel like a big hug and super warm, and every time you come in, it should just make you feel really, really comfortable and accepted. Now, don't get me wrong, that's important, Right? If we don't have a place we feel warm, we don't find a place we have accepted, it never becomes a place that can welcome those who are hurting and those who are suffering. There's others, though, that go, no, church is not a place for me to get comfortable and feel warm and accepted. Church is a place to change the stinking world. 
I see enough brokenness in the world. I see enough apathy in the world. I see enough people who are in literal snuggies on literal couches doing nothing to make the world a better place. And so we're going to work together and we're going to make the world a better place. We're going to find places where there's brokenness, find places where people aren't treated right, find places where there's injustice, and we're going to work to make that a better world. And so there's a striving in that direction. Now, again, this is not everything. If that's the only thing you're doing, people are going to get exhausted, right? We have to have pieces of both of these. But a lot of times when a church strikes out in a direction, what you get is the tears and the screams of joy, just like rebuilding the temple. Because some people go, this isn't comfortable and I'm only here to be comfortable. Or there's other people who are going, I am only here to make moves and to make changes and to do things. Why aren't we, we're not doing enough. And of course there has to be a balance. But Ezra and Nehemiah were people that picked up and went to do something. And this is because God is ascending God. It's because ultimately when those two pieces of your brain start fighting, the part that goes, oh, I want to be comfortable. I don't want to take risks. I'm afraid about trying something new. And the part of you that goes, come on, let's do it. Let's do it. We have to remember that Jesus is kind of there egging us on. John 20, 21 says this. Jesus said, peace be with you. That's nice. That's the snuggy stuff. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. God is a sending God. God is a mission God. And so just like the people in Ezra and Nehemiah are sent to go and to build, similarly, we are sent to go and to build. Which means as we're in a new space, as we're doing new things, there will be bumps, okay? There's already bumps. Some of you have bumps in your back from setting up curtains today, right? Like there are bumps. But we do it because God sent us. And if we said, I'm not going to do this, this isn't comfortable, that is not Christianity. If you want a religion that is about sitting around and merely being comfortable, I don't even know one. Because most of them care about making the world a better place. And we care about trying to engage in our neighborhood and engage in our community and reach new people. And that means we take risks and we do new stuff that's scary and uncomfortable. Because when we do it, we're like Jesus, who took the comfort of heaven and threw it away so that he could live in poverty and squalor and all the difficulties he grew up in so that he could bring new life to people. It's my hope as we go through a new season that we have the ability to um, strike out and to do new things and to try new things, even when it's uncomfortable. And how our new existence here and the school and our new home and all this stuff, how it all shakes out, we don't totally know. But it's exciting. If you were here to help us build in the first place, we're kind of retooling into that mode. where We're rebuilding and replanting. And for those of you who weren't there, hey, it's fun. Trust us. We've done this once and it was a good time. So we're excited about it.